Linnaean. Linnaean. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. London. Linnaean Society of London. Linnaean. Linnaean. Future. 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 I'm uh, Carlos Botero. I'm an evolutionary ecologist at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm an assistant professor of biology, and the main topic that my team works on is trying to understand how organisms adapt and cope with environmental oscillations. And we do that by exploring a range of different subjects that literally cover the gamut from uh, how yeast evolves to changes in environment to how human culture spreads and adapts through time. In this episode, what we are interested in is mostly environmental uncertainty and how they shape courtship behavior, reproductive patterns, and sexual selection. So I'll just start with a very basic question is, how do species take environmental cues to know when and how to reproduce? Well, well things vary depending on the organism that you're, that you're thinking about. But in many cases, particularly when you think about environments that are farther away from the tropics, the light cycles are fundamental. So organisms kind of like time their reproduction to coincide with when the period of uh, sustained non-freezing temperatures is going to be occurring. And, and for that, they have a good cue that happens right before, right before spring comes or right before the summer comes, which is the days start to become longer. And that kind of cue used to be at least very reliable and it used to provide enough information to, to allow individuals to get started, even though maybe the conditions in a given day or week did not seem to be ideal, but they could get started with certain activities and be ready to start at the, at the optimal time. So, so light cycles are one way, but organisms in different environments do different things. So like organisms that live deep underwater use other kinds of, 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 of cues. So like it could be food availability and they breed explosively when suddenly when the plankton arrives or it could be precipitation. So for example, zebra finches in, in Australia, they, they tend to be explosive breeders. So whenever there's, there's lots of rain and suddenly this, this happens, um, they, their physiology is primed to get started really quickly. So basically the answer to your question is there's many different ways of cutting that pie. But in general, we kind of like have a sense that as we move away from the tropics, light cycles can be a really good indication of, of, of when it would be a good time to breathe. Light is not changing, but whereas temperature, precipitation, humidity, all of these are more variable, especially going into the future. Does this mean that species that take their cues from light cycles have a higher chance of survival rather than... In some cases, it really matters, and in some others, it doesn't matter so much. Um, so let me put it this way. When you think about the decision to breed or basically the decision to do pretty much anything related to life history, it really matters kind of like that you do things at the right moment or at the moment in which, in which your, your whole physiology, your whole life history, your cycle is kind of like everything is synced to, to take maximum advantage of those opportunities. Some cues are becoming less reliable. And it turns out, for example, that even though, as you say, the light cycles are invariable. The temperature associated, the temperature changes, the temperature cycles associated with those changes in, in light are changing. 
and the extreme events related to those cycles are also changing. So there are things that are that are that become out of sync. Um, and there are things that are relatively easy to solve with. So for example, the arrival of spring is becoming a little bit earlier. And there's things like the pied flycatcher in Europe that that has been able to to adjust their 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 timing of arrival and their, their timing of breeding. Um, kind of like anticipating this earlier springs that typically what you see in a population is not that everybody does exactly the same thing, but behaviors tend to have a little bit of variation. And individuals that tend to have earlier arrival dates have been favored because they are doing much better because spring is arrival earlier, is arriving earlier. And that kind of like moves the population a little bit. And in some cases, as I say, like there, there has been some evolutionary response to this, to this mismatch between light cycles and temperature. But in some others, it, it, it really doesn't help that much because it's not just that the spring is arriving earlier, but that the conditions are becoming much more unpredictable from year to year. And that there are really horrible years and really good years, and it's very unpredictable when those good and when those bad years are. And the extreme events are becoming more extreme and more frequent. And in some cases, species are just not adapt to that. Let's get into specificity. Um, there's a very interesting article I read about how your study on birdsong, how birdsong changed with changes in their environment and what happened to how selection worked in the, you know, in the, in the changing scenario. I was trying to really test one of the most influential ideas in cognitive ecology, known as the cognitive buffer hypothesis. It has slightly different names in different fields, but in general, what that hypothesis basically posits is that you can expect that environments that vary and that, there are, that vary constantly and that are quite unpredictable should in some way select for behavioral flexibility and should select for bigger brains and learning and behavioral flexibility. Because one of the best ways to deal with the unexpected is to change what you do, basically. It is very difficult to have one jack-of-all-trades phenotype, an actual physical form that allows you to do everything. But behavior could help you use your current phenotype in many different ways and could help you be flexible and adjust to the conditions, even if the conditions change unpredictably. So there's this idea that, that basically environments that vary quite a bit promoted the evolution of, of, of cognition. And one of the things that I started realizing was that when you look at the mockingbirds, which are kind of like this, this banner species that a lot of people that, that know about birds know quite well. If you think about kind of like one of the, of the flashiest birds ever, people kind of tend to think about the peacock because it has like this huge tail and these beautiful colors. Everybody knows a peacock, basically. Mockingbirds are the equivalent of the acoustic world. They sing so many different songs and the variety of their song is just so conspicuous and so beautiful that people have noticed that for quite a while. And one of the things that is pretty amazing is that they can sing hundred. each male can sing hundreds of different songs. Now, when you look at mockingbirds throughout the Americas, it turns out that there's roughly about 30 species, 35 species of, of, of mockingbirds and allies, not necessarily mockingbirds, but thrashers and things similar to that. They all look very similar. They tend to have quite similar natural history, there's some forest versions. There's most of them spend their time out in the open. But it turns out that when you look at their songs, they're very different. Some animals, some of the species actually sing very simple sequences. In the case, for example, of the pearly-eyed thrasher, it's 
pretty much a repetition of two different notes, like beep, 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 where the mockingbird sings hundreds of different things, or the brown thrasher thing, sings even more, thousands of different notes. And we know that all of these species are not born knowing how to sing, but they, they, they learn how to sing from others, and they have to go through the process of, of basically song learning. I was curious to see whether we could use that system to try to test the idea that environments that are more variable and more unpredictable really do promote better learning abilities. Where I, I went through many of the countries in the Americas, trying to kind of like record as many of the, of the species in this family as I could. And for the ones that I couldn't record, then I went to sound collections on archives and extracted some recordings and classify all the different recordings into types and made some standardized measurements of the versatility, the variety, the how well they learn each of the note types, all those kinds of metrics. And to make a long story short, it turns out that there's a really clear signal showing that species that live in more variable and unpredictable places tend to show better indicators of learning. So they learn more types, they tend to imitate other species, they tend to be more consistent in the way that they learn each type. At that point, it seemed kind of like they were supporting this general idea that environments that are, that are constantly variable at least favor the, the mechanisms for learning, even though song learning perhaps is not necessarily what they're actually using to deal with environmental variability, perhaps all these other things that, that they've developed to build their brains um, and the, the learning abilities for other contexts may, may have also spilled in to, um, to their ability to learn how to sing. So if you were to put this hypothesis in terms of climate change, would it mean that species that have experienced time more changes are then be more resilient in a way than species that have only seen very homogenous environments in their life history. We do find that there's a relationship between this development of bigger brains that increase capacity for behavioral flexibility and the ability to respond to climate change. And we do find that the species that have bigger relative brain sizes, so more brain for their body, tend to have like less phenotypic changes in response to climate change. Um, and that's, that has been a, a very interesting finding that we had recently, looking at variation in body size. And we know that, for example, there's, there's this very famous rule called Bergman's rule that shows that when individuals move, or, or when species move into colder environments, their body size tends to become a little bit bigger. And so species that occur over long latitudinal ranges the more tropical, the, 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 the populations that are closer to the tropics tend to be smaller than the populations that are closer to the poles. And it turns out that there's many reasons, physiological reasons, why you want to be bigger. It's like you conserve energy, you lose heat a little bit less, all those kinds of things. And so there, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why you would expect that warmer temperatures in the world should kind of like in the end resu result in a reduction in body size. There's this general response in, in passerines in North America that most of the birds were actually becoming smaller as climate was warming up. Over the 50-year, um, they're becoming smaller. And what we're able to show is that even though, yes, everybody's becoming smaller, those changes are much less pronounced in species that have more behavioral flexibility. And, and the way that we interpret that finding is that what is potentially happening is that behavioral flexibility takes away some of the costs of being a little bit bigger and, and, and it... it it basically makes selection a little bit less intense. How is climate change affecting how behavioral or physical signals or traits are being perceived and selected for? 
there's quite a bit of research on a lot of that. And we have some evidence from my work on bird infidelity and divorce. Most of the time when an animal needs to choose a partner, they rely on external characteristics or behaviors that are indicators of how good the genes or the partner itself are going to be. So for example, if you, for terns that really need to have a partner that's going to help them find food, female terns pay a lot of attention during the courtship period to how often and how frequent and what kind of, kinds of fish does the, 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 does the suitor bring to them. So like if it's a really good provider, then that, that gives, it's much more likely that they accept it as a mate than if it's not because they really are gonna depend on that partner to feed the chicks and themselves during that difficult period of incubation. So there's many reasons why you would prefer a given partner or a specific trait in a partner, depending on your life history, what is it that your species does, where it does it, and how frequently it does it. The problem is that a lot of those displays tend to be dependent on the environment that the animal developed in. For example, the Galapagos Island. In the Galapagos Island, life is completely different on a wet year versus a dry year, because in the wet years, the most of the seeds that are, that are available for those finches tend to be really tiny and difficult to manipulate. So they, 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 they require a very, very specific kind of like tiny beak to do that. Whereas in the dry years, it's like huge seeds that need to be crushed and like they require a very different kind of beak. So like the world changes entirely and, and that change it appears to be driving the the evolution and maintenance of a polymorphism of beaks. So you see some Galapagos finches with, in the same species with really big beaks and some with small beaks. That is what we call an ecological crossover in which, in which kind of like the world around you changes and the rules that you had to decide what is good and what is bad suddenly don't work anymore. So some species are have experienced that to a certain extent for a long time because there's, there's places that change over time. Say, for example, the Galapagos Island. What, what I mean by that is that if a female is choosing on the basis of a trait, but it knows that the environment that, it, that many generations of that specific species have been exposed to allows that species to basically use a reliable cue because that cue always is correlated with something else, then that cue tends to be the one that becomes the part of the display that they pay attention to. And the problem is when those changes happen unexpectedly, that is where things are kind of like, where things really get messed up. The environment and the trade are mismatched all the time because things that you were relying on suddenly don't work anymore. Could you perhaps give us an example of a behavioral strategy that an animal might have adopted, which allows their offspring to be robust against such environmental variability? In birds, for example, what makes a specifically interesting system to study these kinds of questions is that a lot of the species tend to be socially monogamous. And by that, I mean that they tend to pair up with a single individual and at least socially together, male and female take care of that nest and take care of the offspring during, the, during at least that season. For many, many decades, that was kind of like used as an example of, of monogamy and things like that. But it turns out that under all of this like nice appearance, it turns out that a vast majority of the birds engage in hanky-panky. A lot of them really kind of like do extra pair matings with individuals that are not their social mate. And in some cases, it's actually so extreme that rarely a male father's offspring in his own nest 
Like this is like this is, it sounds crazy, but it happens a lot. Not only do they do they are they unfaithful by human terms, but also you find that in some species they they divorce. And what I mean by that is that you see that while some species you see that the same male and the same female remain together for multiple years in a row. And if you go three years from now, like a lot of the parrots that are really long lived, you find that the same male with the same female breed together basically for lifetime. Um, but every now and then you see that suddenly the male and the female are still alive. They're still around in the population, but they're mated with somebody else. So they switch partners. And when you, when you see that, you call that a divorce in, in, in these animals. And it turns out that when ornithologists started looking at it, we started realizing that both divorce and infidelity tend to be common in the natural world. So we started thinking like perhaps those secondary, those are basically secondary mate choices. You, you, you choose your mate once and then you kind of like keep choosing after you establish the partnership. In some cases, you break a bond and you start a new one. And, and we found that, that those behaviors are also correlated with the variability and the unpredictability of the environments. And, and the conclusion that we had at that point was that perhaps what is going on here is that this flexibility, this behavioral flexibility, allows them to still stick with one cue that for the most part is reliable, but not be entirely married with that cue because if the environment changes, then you need to be flexible. In some cases, you need to hedge your bets. And you need to, like, for example, in the case of of, of extra perpaternity, that's perhaps one way of, of capturing more genes, more variety for your offspring so that at least one of them does really well. Do we know why they do this? How do they know that this is for better survival of the offspring? My answer is they don't really need to know. I mean, they just need to behave in a way that works. And perhaps the, the, the individual animal that is engaging in those behaviors has no concept of whether it's good or bad. It just has a concept that that is the way that it likes to behave or it wants to behave. And if the strategy that it proposes out to the world works, then it's favored by selection. If it doesn't, it's not. So, so that is something that I think tends to happen quite a bit in, in, in evolutionary processes. That is that there doesn't need to be a direction. There doesn't need to be an understanding of where you're going or what you're doing. There just needs to be enough variation in the population, basically for selection to do the, th the thinking in quotes for you. Is there any way of, of predicting evolutionary changes to environmental changes? And does that mean that we can have better conservation goals? Well, I really do hope that that is the case. And uh, recently I've been, I've had the pleasure to collaborate with, with conservation practitioners in different parts of the world. Uh, to try to come up with better rules of engagement because I think that there is a big disconnect between people that do theory and people in the ground making conservation decisions. And part of the problem is that it is not easy to know both sides of that coin. It's like for people that are thinking about theory and models and those kinds of things, it, it takes a while to be to be able to like learn the skills and get to that point that you can actually do those kinds of, of models. And oftentimes our training kind of like sets us in different paths. So people either go the path of conservation and actually there's some modelers that do conservation and that's what they do. So I'm not implying that conservation and modeling is complete, are completely separate, but there, there are kind of like very different tracks in which people kind of like tend to specialize. And a lot of the people who have been working on evolutionary theory and the people that have been working on, on, potential understanding of the role of evolution in responses to climate change 
have been kind of like coming at it from the perspective of a of, of very theoretical scenarios. Whereas people in conservation, the people that are actually making the decision have very specific needs, very specific questions that they want to answer. And part of what we're trying to do is to figure out, well, what are the questions? What are the best way for practitioners that need something to reach evolution biologists and evolution biologists that, that think that they have something to say to reach conservation practitioners to basically make it an exchange of ideas, a more productive way to do this. Could you give us an example where your team or your lab is working with on-ground conservationists in trying to apply some of your modeling to, to the situation on the ground? One of the things that we could do is start thinking and lending our brains to, to try to understand, like, well, how, how does evolution normally deal with these extreme events? What can we expect from lineages that are exposed to certain kinds of extreme events? And what, what do we expect that will happen when parameters change, when they become more frequent or variable? So we put out a paper basically answering those questions or trying to answer those questions to the best of our ability. And my hope is that that, that is going to be a paper that is going to be informative, that could be used with, like, we linked it in such a way that, that or we tried to do it in such a way that would make very explicit predictions about, well, if the organism has this or that aspect in their natural history, we could expect this effect. And if it has this other thing, it could expect that effect. So by kind of like trying to 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 present the findings in ways that are, easier to, to, to understand what their implications are that are directly linked to things that, that you can measure on the ground, we hope that, that these models are going to be more useful. Uh, but it is definitely a team effort and, and individuals rarely can do everything. So I'm very, I'm humbled by like the, the, the incredible work that people have been doing and I just hope to be part of, of the solution in my own like even small way. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 Future.